0: Welcome back to the Bridge Builder podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you connect your Catholic faith and what's going on in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, our Policy and Outreach Coordinator.
1: Glad to be here, Jason. We got a really, really interesting show today, so I'm excited for it.
0: Indeed, as usual. A big thank you, first of all, to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for the use of their recording studio, and to our sponsor for this podcast, the State Council, uh, the Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're talking with George Weigel, a Catholic theologian and one of America's leading public intellectuals. We'll be discussing his recent book, The Fragility of Order, and especially in light of some of the disorder we see both in politics, culture, and on the international scene. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we're discussing the document from Pope John Paul II, which is about to celebrate its 20th anniversary, Ecclesia in America, which is a uh, post synodal exhortation that John Paul II wrote uh, regarding evangelization and some of the challenges and opportunities for fostering an encounter with Jesus Christ in the Western Hemisphere with a special attention uh, to the, to the social and political conditions of our time. Then, in our bricklayer segment, Rachel uh, will talk a little bit about some practical opportunities for a living faithful citizenship in the public arena. Rachel, what are we going to hear about today?
1: Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about elections, elections, elections. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's really important, which is praying for your legislators and your newly elected officials. So we're going to dive into that later on.
0: And of course, we finish out with a bit of sacred music, not performed by us, but by the incredible voices from choirs around Minnesota. We're very privileged to have on the podcast today George Weigel. He is a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and currently holds the EPPC's William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. He's also served as the center's president. Mr. Weigel is perhaps best known for his widely translated and internationally acclaimed two-volume biography of Pope John Paul II, Witness to Hope, and its sequel, The End and the Beginning. In 2017, George published a memoir of the experiences that led to the papal biography called Lessons in Hope, My Unexpected Life with St. John Paul II. George is the author of more than 20 other books, including the recent released The Fragility of Order, which he has joined us today to discuss. George, welcome. Glad to be with you.
2: Thank you, Jason. Good to, ha- good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: A pleasure as always. Your your new book, as we've mentioned, is titled "The Fragility of Order." What inspired this recent book? And uh, with so much disorder in the world today, per- particularly the political upheaval around us, it seems your book is uh, relatively timely. What's what's the basic argument? What's the inspiration for the book?
2: The book, Jason, is a collection of of essays. Many of them drawn from the William E. Simon lecture I give here in Washington every uh, late winter. Uh, And in looking at 15 or so of those lectures, I I discovered a theme that I hadn't quite known was there before, and that is that they all, uh, many of them, in in one way or another, uh, discussed uh, something that I think is really quite surprising today, and that is the breakdown of stability and order in the world in uh, american public life uh, and in the church uh... no one expected this twenty years ago uh... it seemed as if uh, the uh, world order uh, established at the end of the second world war and defended throughout the cold war by the united states and its allies had been had been vindicated and we were marching toward the bright uh, sunlit uplands of uh, of a great democratic revolution throughout the world. Uh, American politics is always boisterous. Uh, no one expected 20 years ago the kind of scenes we saw at the beginning of the Kavanaugh nomination hearings uh, several weeks ago. And 20 years ago in the church, uh, we were... Um, coming to the end of, of the John Paul II period, and uh, a measure of stability seemed to have been um, uh, reestablished after the turmoil of the post-Vatican II years. The Council had been given an authoritative interpretation by John Paul II, and you know there seemed to be daylight to run to, if I can quote from the um, football coach at the state next door. Uh, uh, there seemed to be daylight to run to for the new evangelization. Uh, All of that is uh, gone right now. Uh, The world is uh, a mess. Uh, American politics are a mess, and frankly, the Catholic Church is a bit of a mess right now. So these essays in The Fragility of Order are an attempt to, to drill down beneath the surface of all of this turbulence, uh... and and see if we can can identify some of the causes uh... as as you both know i've spent the better part of my professional life um, uh... sort of doing um, political geology uh... in the sense of trying to understand the deeper uh... causes of uh, public affairs uh... the tides of events uh, and, of course, like you, I believe uh, those causes are cultural, and at the heart of culture is is religious conviction. So if we've got uh, turmoil in the political culture, that's probably because we've got turmoil in the public moral culture. And that probably has something to do with the breakdown of, of religious conviction. So that that's the elevator speech. Admittedly, a twenty-floor elevator <laughs> on 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 this book.
1: So you talked about some of the the causes, George, and just George, and just hearing what you're you're saying about the book and how you kind of saw this thread and in in all different areas, it seemed like maybe we were seeing hope and you know particularly in the church at the end of the John Paul II area with you know a, a wellspring of vocations, particularly vocations to the priesthood, all these different things. Um, can you talk specifically about maybe what are some of those specific causes that led us to where we are right now over the past 20 years?
2: In, in the Church?
1: Yeah, because you point back sure. um, to ultimately, you know, to the moral life, right? Yeah. Um, I
2: think, uh, first of all, we have to make some distinctions here. It's not all turbulence all the time, sure. all over the world, Church. Uh, I spent all of last month in Rome at the uh, Synod. Uh, I had some wonderful conversations with uh bishops uh from Africa where there's all sorts of political turmoil and craziness uh but the church is growing by leaps and bounds mm-hmm. uh and one of the points i kept trying to make at the synod both in with the bishops i was working with and in my own writing uh about the synod was that if you look across this vast panorama of world catholicism 1.2 billion people Um, something seems pretty clear. The parts of the Church that have embraced the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI as as giving an authoritative interpretation to Vatican II, and seeing all of that leading towards the new evangelization, those are the living parts of the Church. Mm -hmm. And while they're a bit disturbed by some of the stuff going on right now, Um, they're getting on with it. They're getting on with with what they know uh, they were baptized to do. The dying parts of the World Church, and I think this is particularly obvious in Western Europe, are those parts of the World Church that resisted those two great pontificates uh, and that are still trying to make this uh, seemingly immortal project (laughs) called Catholic Light, work. Mm-hmm. But we've been trying Catholic light for better part of 50 years, and Catholic light simply doesn't work. No one's interested. Uh, so I, that's one way to think about this. Uh, the, you, can, you can describe the fault lines in the, in the Church today in, in many different ways, but, but one very simple one, and I think accurate one, uh, empirically accurate. I mean, something that can be demonstrated uh, by numbers is that the living parts of the church are the all-in Catholicism parts of the church,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the dying parts of the church are the Catholic light. I, I don't know an exception to either one of the either side of that proposition.
3: Sure,
0: George. I want to return to the fragility of order, but since you brought it up, I think uh, maybe a little bit should be said about your book, Evangelical Catholicism, and. Hopefully that's a book that gets a a renewed audience in light of some of the challenges and discussions that are going on, but in light of, you know, the recent synod on the youth and some other things that have been happening in the Church, you know, what in particular about your argument in evangelical Catholicism do you think really uh, has some importance for the ecclesial situation today in the Church?
2: Well, evangelical Catholicism, as you remember, is is kind of a book in two parts. It's, first of all, a, a vision of the Catholic future. Uh, under this rubric of the new evangelization, or since nobody's going to buy a book called The New Evangelization, uh, it was rechristened Evangelical Catholicism. And the second part of the book is some very specific concrete reform proposals, um, some of which I think are are highly relevant to particularly the abuse crisis and whatnot. But let's stick with the first part of the book. My, my argument there, is that the entire modern trajectory of catholic history is the slow but steady recovery of the church's essential identity as a communion of missionary disciples Mm. uh... this took place over some two hundred years It took place amidst the breakdown of traditional religious and other structures uh, throughout uh, the western world uh, it was given an important kick-start by Pope Leo XIII in the late 19th century. It was accelerated by the work of the Second Vatican Council, which I believe has to be interpreted as a council in aid of the new evangelization. And then the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI kind of nailed down the idea that the Church of the future cannot assume uh, that the faith will be transmitted by DNA or osmosis or the culture anymore. Uh, you know this uh, in Minnesota as well as I know it here in Washington, D.C. 20 years from now, nobody is going to answer the question, why are you a Catholic, by saying, because my grandmother was a Catholic. Right. That's just not the way it works anymore. Uh, the parts of the church that have grasped that, that have understood that we are all baptized to a, an evangelical or missionary vocation, that each one of us is a missionary, that it's mission territory all around us, beginning at home, uh, those are the parts of the Church that, that have a chance of, of building out from this turbulence of the present moment uh, and creating something uh, vibrant and uh, meaningful. Uh, at the same time, and I think this bears on your work at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, while the Church was grappling with this identity question, who, who are we? And finally arriving at the answer, we're we are a communion of disciples and mission. Uh, the Church was developing a social doctrine that uh, just might save the modern world from its own incoherence if we could bring it to bear on public life. Uh, So uh, I think all of that remains in play, uh, both in the wider culture and in the Church today, despite all of the the turmoil of the present uh, moment. Uh, And I think any living Catholicism in the future is going to be the Catholicism of missionary discipleship.
0: George, can you expand on that point a little bit? And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about here is living missionary discipleship in the public arena. And people are so concerned that, you know, we we don't even have well-catechized people in the pews. How can we talk about politics and the social doctrine? But yet, politics and the social doctrine can be a way in which we foster that encounter with Christ, that we can be missionary disciples. So if you're, from the standpoint of where you're sitting and what state Catholic conferences and the people in the pew can do to be evangelizers through the social doctrine, to live missionary discipleship in the public arena, what might that look like concretely in our uh, turbulent times?
2: It, uh, It will look different, I think, than the way it looks at the national level uh I uh, don't think there is going to be anything other than massive turbulence in American politics at the national level for the foreseeable future. Um, the country is is deeply and bitterly divided. Uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle are appealing to people's basest instincts rather than their noblest instincts. And uh, there's not a whole lot of room in that non-conversation to inject um, the kind of reason that is at the basis of of Catholic social doctrine. Uh, one, One of the important things about Catholic social doctrine is that it doesn't require Catholic theological admission tickets to engage it. You don't have to believe in the Immaculate Conception to get the idea of subsidiarity, for example. Mm. Um, So I think the the states are really the laboratories in which to try and restore a measure of uh, reason, civility, uh, decency to American public life. And, And because state politics are less susceptible... To what I think is becoming the increasingly destructive effect of social media on national politics um, it, it's a calmer environment i think and uh, now that's relative obviously
3: mm-hmm.
2: but compared to the you know to the madhouse I live in here <laughs> next <thanks laughs> of the Potomac uh you know things look a little you know reasonably calm out there in the heartland um and i think the kind of work that you have done in trying to explain uh why the church defends the inalienable right to life from conception until natural death uh why why the church believes in in a pluralistic educational system in which parents are empowered to be the the primary choosers of education for their children, all of these things have a shot at being um, embodied in, in, in real legislative accomplishment at the state level, whereas we're looking at uh, you know, another couple of years of manic gridlock here uh, uh, inside the Beltway. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and it seems, George, when we're talking about these things that everything is, you know, connected. We talk a lot about integral ecology in our office and that, you know, the idea that everything is connected and affects each other. And so when we're thinking about um, this idea of politics and then also changing the culture, I run into that a lot in my work, especially with Catholics when I'm out, With Catholics in the pews, you know, that could be far off and, you know, a farm um, really far away or even ones in the metro. It's even for Catholics in the pews, it's kind of this idea that we're not only shaping laws, but that we're trying to reorder to society toward what's good and right to help shape culture. And I know you talk about kind of that idea of shaping culture. You mentioned it earlier in your work with John Paul II. And, you know, this idea that really the deepest currents of history flow through culture. So can you talk about that connection a little bit and and what that means and maybe how we go forward as Catholics in influencing the culture and really not only influencing but transforming the culture through our own transformation in Christ?
2: Well, at the deepest evangelical level, I
1: would say
2: Catholics transform the culture one act of witness at a time. Sure. If our parishes are models of solidarity in an increasingly uh, radically individualistic and cold and cranky public culture, people are going to want to know eventually how can you live that way. And then the door is open to the offer of friendship with the Lord and, and the proclamation of the gospel, because that's how we can live that way. Um, I think at, 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 a, at a slightly different level, um, there has to come a moment at which irrationality becomes tiresome mm-hmm. and uh, boring and uh, then off-putting. And at that point, a, a social doctrine that simply asks people to think through uh, a line of argument rather than um, uh, reacting with their glands to every political issue uh, might, might start to look uh, attractive again. Um, I think there have been some attempts to do that. In recent years here in Washington, my friend uh, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, has tried on several occasions to, to bring the social doctrine to bear on, on public policy at the national level. doesn't really work too well right now because we're still in this glandular phase uh, where um, emotion rules the day. Uh, but as that becomes, frankly, intolerable, Uh, There may be uh, an opening uh, to the restitution of of reasonable uh, presentation of of, uh, policies and and arguments. And again, I think the states are going to be the laboratories where that takes place more than than at the national uh, level.
0: George, I had the opportunity to attend the Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame, their fall conference that they hold every year and one might observe visiting that and listening to the panels that the type of constructive engagement with the liberal order that you've been proposing for some time now and that uh, people like michael novak and father richard john newhouse and others have been proposing uh, it seems to be in retreat especially among younger scholars i think people see the disorder and some of the challenges of what's going on in our polity and in our culture and are wondering if that sort of constructive engagement with the liberal order is still possible and, you know, playing with uh, ideas and toying with ideas like integralism or the Benedict option or things like that. Might you offer us some reflections on what you're seeing, especially among younger Catholic intellectuals disenchanted with the way things are and then looking for alternatives um, and what you, what you see in that dynamic and phenomena?
2: I would advise them to read some history. Um, I I frankly find this new integrism, uh, or integralism, or whatever they want to call it, uh, deeply ignorant uh, of history. Uh, Anyone who knows anything about the history of Catholic social thought, not Catholic social doctrine, but Catholic social thought, in the 1920s and 1930s, knows that there was an enormous flirtation with um, one form or another of authoritarian politics uh... To the point where, in the early 1930s, uh, the abbot of the Benedictine Abbey of Maria Loch in, in Germany, which, by the way, was one of the um, uh, central places where the liturgical movement in its old and classical form was 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 underway, the abbot of Maria Loch described the National uh, German Socialist Workers Party, the Nazis as the embodiment of the mystical body of Christ.
3: Oops.
2: Uh I mean that's appalling, uh but when you read that in Dietrich, Dietrich von Hildebrand's uh, diaries, uh you begin to understand we've been down this road before. Uh it was the same with the flirtation with uh, with Italian fascism, uh with uh, Franco's statism in Spain uh... this is a reaction against the turbulence of of pluralism uh... and out of control plurality um, but that, that attempt to find a mythical unitary uh... state culture society church is is always trouble uh... people need to go back and read the city of god uh... which they obviously haven't spent a whole lot of time on uh so that's first uh, the first thing I'd say to these people is read some history. Second thing is what's your alternative? Um, what's your alternative? Uh there's a lot of interesting and and sometimes even useful critique of what is broad brush described as the liberal order, but I don't hear any uh alternatives that have the slightest chance of 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 being adopted being proposed uh, monarchy uh oligarchy aristocracy what's the alternative here i I wrote last uh, fall a year ago a uh an explanation of what I thought authentic Catholic reform was, meaning a recovery of something that had been lost or misplaced in the in the patrimony of the church and recovered and brought back into the present and i used the second vatican council's uh, teaching on religious freedom and what led up to that as an example a monk at one of these new uber hyper traditionalist monasteries in europe wrote this uh, wrote the uh, magazine and said uh this is all interesting, but but uh, the teaching of Pius XI uh, in Quas Primos on Christ as the King of the Universe uh, uh, remains determinative and should be acknowledged by every state. And the editor of the magazine asked me for a comment on this, and I wrote back, and I said, thank you very much, I'm a great fan of the... A solemnity of Christ the King, I've written about it for twenty years as the church's liturgical response to to totalitarianism, uh, the rise of totalitarian power in Europe. But I do not understand what having Donald Trump declare Jesus Christ the King of America will do to advance the new evangelization. Perhaps <laughs> Father could enlighten me on that. <laughs>
0: That elicited a, a strong <laughs> chuckle. So thank,
2: yes. thank well, good. <laughs> I'm glad because it deserves to be laughed at. Well, and then there's then there's uh, Rod Dreher and his Benedict option. I mean, nobody seems to know what this means specifically. Every time you say, "Well, do you mean this?" Rod says, "Well, no, not quite." Uh, look, if uh, the, the notion of building intentional communities of Christian uh, conviction and witness uh is something i've been talking about for the better part of 3 decades. Uh but the idea that you can sort of go off to northern idaho and and hide for two or three generations and then come out and reconvert america is just ludicrous. Uh i mean first of all the internet gets to northern idaho <laughs> and so does social media and so does all the the other stuff that's making such a hash out of our uh, culture. Secondly, I, and most fundamentally, I think Rod doesn't understand Saint Benedict. Uh, Benedict was not about hiding. Benedict was about creating intentional communities where civilization was preserved. But from those monasteries, the re-evangelization of Europe took place. Uh, it was from a Benedictine monastery on the Chalian Hill in Rome that Gregory the Great, former Benedictine abbot, uh, sent uh, the man we now know as uh, Saint Augustine of Canterbury to England to convert the Angles. That's what I call the Gregorian option. I describe that in in the book The Fragility of Order, and I think that that's what we're looking for: intentional communities as launch platforms for evangelization uh, and work in in the public square.
0: George, if you've got time for one more question, I'd, we'd love to get your thoughts on how Pope John Paul II might respond today, uh, especially to what's going on in Europe with uh, the, the, the uh, explosion in uh, populist political movements, but at the same time, that in response to the migration crisis and some of the other things that are, are challenging with regard to the spiritual decay of Europe, how might Pope John Paul analyze and, and approach and speak to uh, what's going on in europe today on a number of fronts
2: well if he were a man interested in being intellectually vindicated he he could he could certainly feel himself to be that uh, i mean uh, 28 years ago he was 27 years ago he was talking about uh, the the imperative of a thick moral cultural foundation for democracy to succeed uh, that uh, democracy simply is a uh, were the free society simply as a matter of of uh a certain kind of politics and and uh market centered economics this was not enough you need you needed a certain kind of people to make those mechanisms of democracy and the market work so that they produce uh, real human flourishing and social solidarity. So, uh, I think he would, uh, the cultural breakdown all over the Western world is something he sensed coming, and I think he had his finger on this as as the root cause, to use that often bad phrase, of uh, of a lot of our political distress uh, right now. Um, I'm not sure even he took the full measure of how much. The three world wars of the 20th century, the First and Second and the Cold War, simply kicked the stuffing out of Europe. Um, the first essay in this book, The Fragility of Order, uh, was written four years ago for the centenary of the beginning of World War I, and suggests that that, is, that was the catastrophe, that was the civilizational catastrophe that set the next 80 years in motion and it was a civilizational catastrophe uh... it was an act of of civilizational suicide um, and i don't know that any of us in in the exaltation of the early nineteen nineties with the forces of freedom vindicated the good guys win in poland and elsewhere soviet union collapses um, i'm not sure that any of us accurately measured how much uh... the foundations had had crumbled over the previous eighty years such that there was not going to be a smooth transition to the future uh... but there was going to be a very rough and rugged and demanding challenging and probably decades-long rebuilding of of the moral culture of the West, if it was going to be able to sustain the institutions of free politics and free economics, and I think we're living through that right
3: now.
0: George, thank you very much for an engaging and informative conversation. As always, you help us make sense of what's going on in the Church and in the world, and we are grateful for that and uh, wish you continued blessings upon your work. Uh, For our listeners, George's newest book, The Fragility of Order, is available now, and we encourage you all to pick it up. Again, thank you to George Weigel from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We'll be back in a moment. We are back for our segment on classic Catholic social teaching, and right on the heels of our discussion uh, with papal biographer George Weigel, we're taking up uh, an overlooked, I think, in many ways, and perhaps forgotten, which is why we have the segment, document from Pope John Paul II, uh, his exhortation Ecclesia in America, which came uh, after a synod. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just coming on the heels of a synod, too, Right. Um, about uh, the challenges and opportunities for evangelization and social renewal in the Western Hemisphere, a lot of this was great to look at. This Rachel, because I saw a lot of themes that are, have stayed consistent over the decades in the Church's social teaching, which is an important reminder that while the times change, the principles don't. Right, and um, it, it also, at the same time, is kind of a sad reminder about how little we've taken Pope John Paul's words to heart, and how much shovel work we need to do to really live the vision he offered for. The world in the west and when of course when he speaks of america he's not just talking about the united states he's talking sure. about the whole hemisphere right
1: yeah and one thing i love about i mean in all st john paul II's writings but particularly in this you mentioned you know social change and reordering society and he just he talks about practical ways to do that and he talks about all different issues um but always with encounter with jesus christ at the core right so there's no social change without that encounter first. And I just love uh, one of the, my favorite quotes from the entire thing. He's, he has a quote in here. He's talking about the saints, right? And our, the saints are just are models for encounter and then social change. He's talking about that encounter with the living Christ. He said, in the, saint, them, the saints, the encounter with the living Christ is so deep and demanding that it becomes a fire which consumes them completely and impels them to build his kingdom to the point that Christ and the new covenant are the meaning and the soul of personal and communal life. Like, I think that's like a thesis statement, right, for for what should be every Christian, every Catholic.
0: Yeah, and that idea of encounter is something that we've been hearing about, in, especially in this pontificate, too, mm-hmm. right? The encounter with Christ and fostering that encounter. And really, Pope John Paul II highlights the social doctrine mm-hmm. as a place, a privileged place of encounter, right. where people and others, as George was talking about a moment ago, can in fact encounter the Church when, uh, when irrationality, and glandular politics have exhausted everyone, civil discourse rooted in solid principle, uh, really might be a wonderful asset. And in here you see perhaps the origins of the what's called the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of a catechism of the church's social doctrine that was after that uh, released by the Holy See.
1: Mm-hmm. And just as, as you were talking there, I just had this idea, you know, as we're reading through this by John Paul of that, you know, the pl- the social doctrine of the church in its truths and really the keys to human happiness and human flourishing can be a place of conversion for people that encounter us during this time of irrationality. It can be kind of a beacon of light in this time where things are, you know, illogical and not working right. But that requires of us, you know, that encounter with Jesus Christ and the ability to to keep on believing and trusting that, you know, what the church has said and what the church in her wisdom has laid out, that they really are the keys to human happiness and human flourishing, or we can't be those beacon, that beacon of light for other people, you know? So really holding fast to what we know to be true and not ourselves getting lost in, in the messiness of things because that strips us of our ability to have get, offer people an encounter with so, that social doctrine and that truth.
0: And he really offers us there a, a really a great summary of the social doctrine uh, as well and hits on a number of important themes uh, that are affecting the Western Hemisphere, particularly, of course, um, and something that's become much bigger issue, the issue of migration. Right. Mm-hmm. And talking about how the nations of America they really have to have a generous heart with regard to migration, particularly migrants coming from the south to the north uh, and the northern countries and the importance of generosity there, but everything from uh, globalization, uh, speaking to the importance of the fighting the culture of death, the issue of racism, which mm-hmm. has reared, it seems, its ugly head in the conversation, uh, the public con- public discourse and the public conversation today. So really, in, an, in, a, in a strange sort of way, but expectedly, I guess, a timely exhortation that the church's perennial principles have something to tell us, and that some of these social problems that we've been experiencing um, are not new, but mm-hmm. they've been going on a long time, and which is why we can't ever—we have to stay vigilant, right? That we right. can't ever expect that they're going to go away fully, as long as there's that sin in the human heart. Sure, there's always going to be a need to refoster that encounter with Christ and renew the social order through recognition of His dominion and His kingship over all things.
1: hmm Yeah, and even you know, with uh, so many things in the church when you really sit down and look at what it is and what the church teaches, you get a whole different view than what you think it is. You know, and even just looking at this document, you know, someone from the out, from the outside of the church or who thinks the church is just concerned about certain things say, well, I'm going to open this John Paul II's I on social doctrine, it's just going to say on every page, abortion, 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 you know. But you look at this and he, John Paul II reaffirmed over and over again the sanctity of life. But every page is, you know, he's talking about foreign debt. He's talking about drug problem. He's talking about migration. All of these things that the church has a hand in and all these ways that she's concerned about holding up human dignity, you know, and that we, the church really does provide Um, a consistent ethic of life and a consistent, credible witness to that.
0: Yeah, and one thing definitely to highlight, too, is the preferential option for the poor and mm -hmm. what that means that the society is judged by the way in which it treats its most vulnerable members. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's not just people who are economically destitute or economically struggling, but also the unborn and the disabled and the elderly as well. Mm -hmm. And he highlights those and really bridges that uh, sometimes seemingly psychological or existential gap in our politics between... The sanctity of life and the dignity of human persons but one one piece i wanted to highlight too which has so much resonance with what pope francis talks about in laudato si is this idea of conversion right that the first step in renewing the social order mm-hmm. is conversion so in the uh, environmental world or with regard to the care of creation we need ecological conversion pope mm-hmm. francis talks about and then in ecclesia in america john paul ii talks about the same thing the importance of conversion is the Before he even talks about the social doctrine of right. the church and brings that into the discussion in a deeper way, he talks about conversion, which, again, there's no social renewal without Christ. There's mm-hmm. no brotherhood of man without the fatherhood of God and right. and recognizing our sonship and, and as sons and daughters as of Christ and sons and daughters of the Father. So I thought that was really an important point. We can never forget the importance of that reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a foundational piece. I even think in my own life before I got in this work. That's how I got really in, involved in this work is because I was converted. You know, when I fell in love with the person of Jesus Christ, and then everybody that I saw was not just a person walking on the street, but they began to be my neighbor and they began to be Christ to me. You know, and so even just personally that really resounds because how can we um how can we see each other and value each other properly? unless we really have that spiritual vision granted to us by God.
0: And it would be, uh, I think we'd be missing something if we didn't underscore the importance of Pope John Paul speaking to America, mm-hmm. broadly speaking, right? Yeah. Not just the United States, but America, which highlights the reality that our destinies are intertwined, right? right. That talk about the importance of solidarity. There must be solidarity between the nations that we we stand and fall together in many ways, and that we can't simply be looking at it solely from the perspective of just our nation, but our destinies are bound up together. The well being of the peoples all across America are bound up together in both living that reality. And I hear, I think, too, that that tradition at the end of uh, papal documents and documents in the social tradition by invoking our Blessed Mother and recognize that mm, yeah. the whole hemisphere is really under the domain and patronage of. Our Lady, and one can say under the uh, perhaps the patronage of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who mm-hmm. represents in her person that, um, you know, mestizo woman right. of, in Our Lady of Guadalupe, the mixture of European and uh, Native cultures and Native societies here in the American context. And how much we need to recall that image and recognize that all of this is her dominion and we're all bound, our destinies are bound together.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, that's... Uh, just a, another reason to not forget about these papal documents. Sometimes they get read or not read and put on the shelf, but they can mm-hmm. always be returned to in mind for both spiritual and theological riches. So Ecclesian America celebrating its 20th anniversary coming up on January 22nd 2019, but uh, certainly one we don't want to put on the shelf Ecclesian America, St. John Paul II. We'll be back in a moment where we'll talk about, the ways in which you can practically live the social teaching of the church after the election bishop fulton sheen archbishop fulton sheen popularized the idea of a holy hour uh, eucharistic devotion eucharistic adoration Um, back in the 50s. The story behind that is one you don't want to miss, of course. He learned and popularized that holy hour after hearing about the story of a Chinese girl during the Boxer Rebellion who consumed hosts that had been desecrated by um, uh, militiamen and who then was executed, unfortunately, but uh, uh, recognizing that this Chinese little Chinese girl couldn't have such devotion to the Eucharist that Mm -hmm. he as a priest needed to have that sort of devotion as well in his own life, and uh resigned you know created the resolution resolved really to spend time with the blessed lord or blessed lord in the sacrament of the eucharist every day in adoration and uh, a good lesson for us to, to again for if we want to live the social teaching with converted hearts to be close to jesus especially in the mm-hmm. eucharist but rachel you want to talk a little bit about something that's a little twist on a popular devotion the citizenship hour what might that look like
1: yeah, so kind of going off the you know the phrase that you know as much as as Catholics as much as we're talking about something we should be praying about it more, <laughs> you know especially post elections and with politics not only on the national level but sometimes on the state level um, there's a lot of great things that we can do and a lot of great conversations that we can have but we always have to remember to be rooted in prayer so we want to propose to you as Jason just said um, something called a citizenship hour so to take an hour a week. Um, or a period of time for a week um, or every week to to have this citizenship hour, to really intentionally pray for your legislators, right? Because we want to be a resource to them, as we've been talking about. And what better way to be a resource than to pray for them, to ask for grace, especially the ones that you don't agree with, right? And so um, we have some new legislators in office. Um, we have new representatives. We have-
0: New governor. A new
1: governor. New attorney general. New attorney general. Um, and so this is a time- for you really to do some spiritual work and some spiritual battle and to, to pray for your legislators. And you can do that however you want. You can do that in a holy hour in front of the blessed sacrament at your parish. You can pull some people in with you, um, who are from your parish that, you know, might be interested. You can do a rosary as we were just saying in the last segment that Mary really has wrapped her mantle around the Americas and she's a great, great patroness to pray to, um, for your legislators. Um, and really, yeah, however you wish to pray them, uh, Pray for them, but do it for a dedicated, concrete amount of time, you know, so sit down and, you know, maybe you start next week and on Sunday you're laying out your schedule and pencil in a time, you know, just like you have to pencil in your prayer time every day, pencil in some time to pray for your legislators.
0: And perhaps you've already got, uh, you're already doing a holy hour Mm -hmm. in adoration and you've been working the intentions of your legislators, the common good of our communities Uh, Nurturing that solidarity in your prayer life will make the citizenship hour something different. Make it about your responsibility to learn about the issues, to learn about the candidates, learn how you can be a faithful citizen in public life. Right. Just one hour Mm -hmm. a week. uh, We've got to believe that, you know, one hour a week we have to be able to devote to the common good. Faithful citizenship not being something we can delegate to other people or people who enjoy politics as a hobby or whatever, but it's part of everyone's responsibility to live faithful mm-hmm. citizenship. So maybe thinking about how you do, you set aside one hour a week to learning about an issue, to writing a letter to the editor, to having coffee with your legislator, mm-hmm. to becoming an advocate for a specific issue. So couple your already existing holy hour with a citizenship hour that's really focused on engagement, constructive engagement, Uh, in political life. And of Mm -hmm. course, we at the Minnesota Catholic Conference try to make those opportunities and those suggestions uh, available and practical for people to do so.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another practical thing you can do, you know, surrounding the, the citizenship hour and getting out there and, and doing some work, you can do multiple citizenship hours in one day at Catholics at the Capitol 2019. So, February 19th, uh, 2019, we've mentioned it before, but we're having another Catholics at the Capitol event. Um, and so, registration has been open for that. So, this is just another reminder to go to Catholics at the Capitol.org to register. And you are going to want to register right after you hear this, register immediately because we have a, a lot of amazing speakers. We have a lineup of speakers. Um, but particularly, Jason, you want to tell them who's going to be there with us?
0: Well, the day is designed to inspire, engage, uh, and equip you to be a faithful citizen and one of the basic things is petitioning the government for a redress of grievances right so going to the actually going to the Capitol and talking to your legislator which is your constitutional right to do so and in fact legislators want to hear from you so Mm -hmm. Catholics of the Capitol we form you and equip you to help you do that but we also inspire you as well and we have really an inspirational group of speakers who have been leading thinkers and witnesses about what uh, it means to live the faith in public life first of all Archbishop Charles Chaput from Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. one of our foremost uh, thinkers and theologians related to our role as faithful citizens. We've got Gloria Purvis coming back as MC. You know her from EWTN's Morning Glory show. Uh, Music minister Danielle Rose is going to inspire us with some beautiful music, but we're super excited about all of them, of course. But we also have actor Jim Caviezel coming. And you know Jim uh, mostly from his role as Jesus in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. So is an inspiring witness for living one's faith publicly, even with some sacrifice, even with a cost, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Jim's really going to inspire us as well. If you didn't see The Passion, you may have seen him on CBS's Person of Interest and a bunch of other movies. So uh, Jim Caviezel joining an already outstanding lineup of speakers at Catholics of the Capitol on February nineteenth, 2019. And as Rachel said, you want to register right away. Space is limited. We want to get people from all over the state, so we need to limit how many people— Can come from each legislative district so you want to Uh register early Um, we'll put you on the wait list if it's already full but uh, definitely want to register you and your friends very early in that catch the next episode of the podcast on soundcloud join us on facebook at mn catholic on twitter at mn catholic c-o-n-f and check out our youtube channel again a big thank you to relevant radio 1330 am and our sponsor the Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the Domestic Church. And thank you for listening. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. And finally, as always, we like to close with a podcast of great conversation with great sacred music. Here is Oquam Gloriosum, O How Glorious, performed by the Gregorian Chant Scola of St. John's Abbey, remembering and praying for the holy souls in purgatory. Oquam Gloriosum from the Scola of St. John's Abbey.